Good day, everybody. How are you? Well, not very good. That's okay. We'll persevere. Uh, just uh, grab your weekly snack for a moment, just before we uh, open up John 18. Have that open in front of you. That'll be fantastic. Uh, just a few things to let you know about. The first is that uh, next Sunday, as I wrongly mentioned last week, this coming Sunday, Sunday the 14th, is our actual day for our monthly prayer meeting. Uh, so it's going to be 3 p.m. here at St. James. Uh, it'll be an encouraging time, so please come along. Uh, also, we've been talking about Invest the last few weeks. Uh, it's encouraging to see more and more regos rolling in for that. Uh, as I said before, do everything you can to be at that weekend. Put off other things that are happening. Try and uh, move your work, that kind of thing. It's going to be an encouraging time to spend together as well. Uh, you also notice on the front of your weekly snack that uh, there's a bit of an ad for a marriage enrichment course. Uh, it's no surprise that marriage, uh, as Christians, brings many joys and also many hardships. And so it's definitely something that we as believers need to keep working on uh, if we are married. Now, if you are interested in this course coming up, we thought we'd just give you the information. There's more details to come, but just so you can lock these dates in your diary if you're interested, it's on uh, in the middle of September. So there you go. You have that information. Let's pause and pray and uh, look at John 18 together. Our Father, you are so good to us in giving us your word, in sending your Son that we might know who he is, what he has done, and how we should respond. Father, we pray that you would show us from your word those things now, that we might grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. If you were one of Jesus' 11 disciples, if you were with Jesus that night before he died, if you heard him pray this prayer, how would you have thought that God would answer it? What kind of things should God do in response to this prayer? If you were one of those 11 disciples, how do you think God would answer? And would you expect the answer to be, at least in part, the passage that we just read out, John 18. Why do I ask that? Well, because at this point of John's Gospel, we have a turn in the story. We've been working through John 13 to 17 together. I hope you remember Jesus' last meal, his last night with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And he's been teaching them, preparing them for him to go. He says, I'm going away. And then he prays this prayer. So if you were one of the 11, would you expect things to turn out the way that they did as he goes to the cross in just a few hours' time? Well, here we have it. Jesus says, my hour has come. And then the rest of John's gospel, John chapter 18 onwards, that's what we get, the answer to this prayer. Judas has gone out into the night to betray Jesus. And we see Jesus' passion as he's arrested and tried. So come with me, let's explore uh, chapter 18 together. Uh, you can see on your outline, the first big chunk is verses 1 to 14. We'll spend most of our time there, and then the last few chunks are a bit smaller. So read along with me, verse 1. What does John say? 
After Jesus said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. See, after Jesus' final meal, he and his disciples head out of the city of Jerusalem, out through the walls, and down through the the valley to the east of Jerusalem. Up on the other side, on the Mount of Olives, they come to a garden. And we know from the other Gospels that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, normally, this is a safe place for Jesus and his disciples. But not tonight. Why? Because look at verse 2. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place. Judas knows where Jesus will be. Because Jesus often met there with his disciples, John says. And so the inevitable happens. Verse 3, Judas takes a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches and weapons. Judas' betrayal is complete. It seems he's gone to the Jewish leaders who hate Jesus. They want to kill him. And he said, I can tell you where he'll be. I can show you where he'll be in the dead of night where no one's watching where you can take him and do what you want. And it seems Judas has got the better of Jesus here, doesn't it? But remember, Jesus knew that Judas knew where this garden was. And Jesus knew that Judas would most likely know to find Jesus and his disciples at this very place. You think Jesus would go somewhere where Judas wouldn't know about, somewhere new, But Jesus went here intentionally, didn't he? He's the one who's really in control of this situation. He's choosing to go there. And he shows that he's in control. Again, look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, he knew it all. He went out and said to them, who is it that you're looking for? So here comes this mob towards Jesus in the garden. But Jesus doesn't hang back or flee. He meets them. He goes to them. He's not afraid. He's the one in command here. They come to arrest him, but he's basically giving himself up, isn't he? He's the one in control. Because Jesus, well, he knows the answer to his own question, doesn't he? It's almost as if he's accusing them. Accusing them. He says, who are you after? Why are you chasing down me, an innocent man? Well, then, verse 5, the mob answers, we're after Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Look there. I am he, Jesus told them. Which is Jesus saying, yes, that's me. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I'm the one you're looking for. Jesus doesn't shy away from them, does he? He's in command. But he's actually saying more than that. Because literally all that Jesus says is two words. I am. I am is all he says. And if you know John's gospel, you know that Jesus, what Jesus means by this. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that Jesus is saying more than I am Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, I am God. I am the God who revealed himself to Moses back in the book of Exodus. Who said, I am who I am. My name is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. So this is Jesus stating here unambiguously, I am the God of the Old Testament. I, with the Father and the Spirit, we are the one true God, Yahweh, I am. 
Jesus has spoken this boldly once before in John's Gospel. Look at John 8.58 on the screen. Jesus said to them, the crowd, the Jews, I assure you, before Abraham was, thousands of years ago, I am. And so they tried to kill him because he claimed to be God. Come back to Gethsemane and look at what happens this time when he says, I am. It's as if power goes out from him. Verse 6, when he told them, the mob, I am he, or just I am, they stepped back and fell to the ground. They've come with swords and clubs, thinking they're in charge. Jesus says two words, and they fall flat. It's awesome, isn't it? Jesus is awesome, isn't he? In the true sense of that word, God in the flesh stands before them. He's in command. Well, as the mob gets back to their feet, maybe confused about what's going on, Jesus takes control again. He asks them a second time, who are you looking for? It's almost like he's mocking them. And they answer, Jesus the Nazarene, yet again. So Jesus says, verse 8, I've already told you, I'm your guy. So leave these others, the disciples, alone. And you can imagine that if this was a bad mafia movie at this time, then the, the baddies would be like, who are you to negotiate? We, we outnumber you 10 to 1 or something like that. But here, Jesus is commanding the situation again, even if he is outnumbered. And John says, this is how he interprets it, verse 9, this, what Jesus said, was to fulfill the words he had already said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Jesus has just prayed those words in chapter 17, in the midst of his own danger, he's looking after his disciples. He's ensuring that none of them are lost. And that day, none of them were. None of them were arrested. Jesus is in control. And you can imagine at this point that tensions are at their highest. It's a standoff, the threatening mob on one side, Jesus and his disciples on the other. You could cut the air with a knife. Except that's not what happens. What happens? Peter takes a sword and cuts a man's ear off. Peter, bold as always. This triggers chaos. And in the commotion, Peter is arrested and the disciples, sorry, Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee. But not before Jesus takes command again. Look at verse 11. At that, Jesus said to Peter, sheath your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus says, no, Peter, you can't fight. That is not my way. No, I must, Jesus says, I must drink the cup the Father has given me. What is the cup that the Father has given Jesus to drink? Well, the answer is in the Old Testament again. In the Old Testament, the image of a cup is used to signify God's wrath against sin. In Isaiah, it says, Stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup of his fury from the hand of the Lord. In Jeremiah, it says, Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and make the nations drink it. The cup Jesus must drink is God's righteous anger against human sin. It's his just punishment for sin. It's what everyone deserves There is no one righteous, not even one, God says. It's what you and I deserve for our sin, death and judgment, condemnation and hell, but 
Jesus is going to drink it instead. And when did Jesus drink this cup of God's wrath? Well, it's on the cross, isn't it? Jesus is talking about the hour that he has come to, the time for him to be glorified. And so as he suffers and dies on the cross, he is drinking that cup that is full of the wrath of God in our place. Though he doesn't deserve it, as he drinks it, as a righteous man and as God the Son, he drinks it for us, on our behalf. Praise him. And this is why John can say, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. He gave him to die on the cross for us. He gave him to drink the Father's wrath for us. So that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Back to Gethsemane. Do you see how Jesus is in control? He's choosing not to fight. He's choosing to go the way of the cross and to let this mob arrest him and ultimately bring him to his death. He is in command. And this is what Jesus has already said in this gospel. In Back in chapter 10, he said, I am laying down my life so I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. See, the Jewish leaders aren't in control. Judas and his mob have no real power. Jesus is the one who is in command. And so what happens? In verse 12, Jesus is arrested and tied up. In verse 13, they take him back into Jerusalem to see Annas. He's the ex-high priest. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, he's the current high priest. They keep it in the family, apparently, uh, in this family. And John reminds us, verse 14, that this is the high priest, Caiaphas, who has already prophesied about Jesus without realizing it. He said, Caiaphas said back in chapter 11, it's better for one man to die than for all the nation to die. Now what Caiaphas meant was this, let's kill Jesus so the Romans don't come and kill all of us. But what Caiaphas didn't understand is that he was explaining the true meaning of Jesus' death, unknowingly, that Jesus would indeed die in the place of many people. He would drink the cup of God's wrath so that those who believe in him won't have to. But then the perspective of the story changes. I'm sure you realize that as we were reading it before, up until now the action has been focused on Jesus, Jesus in the garden. And now the scene changes in Jerusalem, in the high priest's house, focused on Peter. So what happens with Peter in verses 15 to 18? Let's look at it together. Peter, verse 15, is following Jesus at a, different, at a distance as they take him to Annas. And you could, at this point, think of Peter as being courageous. He's just cut a guy's ear off, and now he's still hanging around. He might be recognized. All the other disciples fled, and so did he at first, but now he's plucked up the courage to follow Jesus and see what happens. But it doesn't take us long to see that Peter's courage has a limit. As Peter is let into the high priest's courtyard, 
they grill him. Verse 17. Then the slave girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Peter's answer is cold and short. I am not. You can almost feel the betrayal, can't you? Jesus, the one who has been his master and teacher for three years, who is on the way to the cross for him, Peter denies that he even knows him. So verse 18, Peter is led in, he warms himself by the fire, waiting to see what will happen. You know, when I was a really little kid, I was a little bit like Peter. I was a uh, serial denier. When my parents got me in trouble, I would deny it. I didn't do it, I would say, even if they caught me red-handed. There was this one time when my parents were moving furniture in their house, and they put this cabinet, which was kind of you know, cheap and made of chipboard, they put it in the backyard just temporarily. And being the destructive little boy that I was, what did I do? I was like, why is it in the backyard? It must, they mustn't want it. So I found Dad's hammer, and I proceeded to smash in every chipboard panel and totally destroy it. So it was just a frame and a crumbled pile of chipboard. It was a lot of fun. But soon enough, my mum was like, what did you do to the cabinet? And what did I say? I denied it. I didn't do it. I was just playing in the backyard, and all of a sudden, I turned around, and it was just like that. I don't know what happened. I don't know why I thought she would believe me, and of course she didn't, and I suffered the consequences. I was a bit of a serial denier. But Peter's denial, his situation, is very different, isn't it? It's much more serious than childhood fibbing. It's denying his Lord and Master, who he has followed for three years, who has taught him about who the Father is, who has shown him how to live, who has included him in his innermost circle. Peter's denial is such a serious thing. But then all of a sudden, the scene changes back to Jesus. In the other Gospels, they record Peter's denials three in a row. So why does John break up the story here? Well, I think he's building anticipation. You know, he's leaving us to wonder, what's Peter going to do? Is he going to deny another time and then another time? He keeps us in suspense. But I also wonder whether John is drawing a comparison. Here's Jesus, the one who testifies boldly, who's in harm's way, but then Peter, no, he denies the Lord to get out of harm's way. He's showing that Peter and we, we are sinners who need Jesus, the righteous one, the faithful one. So let's look at Jesus' so-called trial. Verse 19, the scene changes, changes. We're now inside the high priest's headquarters. And the high priest questions Jesus. He doesn't call witnesses. No, he just accuses Jesus directly. Look at Jesus' response, verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and the temple complex where all the Jews congregate. It's all been public. I haven't spoken anything in secret. And then Jesus gets in their face, verse 21, Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. 
Jesus says, you know what I've said, or at least you can go and ask people who know what I've said. There are plenty of witnesses out there if you could be bothered to go and call them. This is not a real trial. You're just accusing me without witnesses. Jesus is bold, isn't he? He's showing again, he's the one who's in charge. But then things get nasty. Look at verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? Here marks the beginning of Jesus' physical suffering that will end in the cross. And I don't know about you, but this boils my blood a little. How dare he treat Jesus like that? If anything, this guy should be slapping the high priest or slapping himself, not Jesus. But look at the way Jesus responds, not like me. Verse 23, he calmly says, If I have spoken wrongly, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Jesus yet again shows he's in control. Without revenge, without retaliation, Jesus keeps his cool. He simply states the truth. I'm not in the wrong here. You are. Don't you wish you had the same strength as Jesus when you were attacked? I do. He's our great example, isn't he? Okay, the scene changes again one final time. We're back with Peter in the courtyard and our fears are realized. Does Peter come good? Unfortunately not. Verse 25. Those around the fire turn to Peter and say, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Strike two. End of verse 26. Another slave says, Didn't I see you with him, Jesus, in the garden? Peter then denied it again. Strike three. And then come these troubling words. Immediately, a rooster crowed. What did Jesus say in just the few hours before this in John 13? I assure you, Peter, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. What would it have felt like to be Peter in that moment? To hear that piercing sound. To know in that instant what you had done. Flatly denied your Lord three times. John doesn't tell us how Peter responds. Did you notice? He just leaves us to imagine. I'm sure it must have been awful. The other gospels simply say this. That he went out and wept bitterly. And that's the last we hear of Peter until Jesus rises again. He disappears in shame and grief. You know, I was reflecting on what we can learn from Peter's denials. There's such a tragic event, such an awful thing that happened. What can we learn? Here's three thoughts, three things to finish with that we can learn from Peter. The first is this. It should break our heart when people deny our Lord. Whether it's someone who's a Christian, who in a moment of weakness, like Peter here, denies they know Jesus. Or maybe they don't stand up for Jesus when there's pressure. 
Or if there's someone who once said, I'm a Christian, but has since thrown in the face and given up on Jesus. Whichever one it is, shouldn't that break our heart when that happens? Shouldn't we mourn and weep when people deny our Lord? Jesus has done so much for us. He's gone to the cross for us. He is so good to us. He gives us eternal life. He's holy and righteous, and he will judge. And so it should break our hearts when people deny our Lord. Don't we want to be people who so love Jesus and care about his honor that we mourn when people deny him? It should drive us to our knees in prayer. Prayer for the the Christian who has stumbled in this sin or prayer for the person who has denied Jesus completely. It should drive us to reach out to that person in love, in gentleness, and appeal to them, turn back to Christ. That's the first thing we should learn from Peter. The second is this, that there is forgiveness for those who deny Jesus. Maybe you are someone who has denied Jesus in one way or another. In fact, I think I can safely say that every person in this room, at least every Christian in this room, has denied Jesus at some point in their life. Been ashamed of him before others. Stayed silent when you know you should proclaim him. Or you might be someone here who has given up on faith in Jesus altogether. Do you know what the good news for us, all of us, is? Peter was forgiven. Peter was restored. We'll see this in the coming weeks in John's Gospel. You can read about him in the book of Acts. Peter was forgiven. And he went on to be a pillar in the church, an apostle. That same good news is for us, isn't it? That Jesus forgives those who come to him in repentance and faith. That his blood covers all our sin, including the sin of denying him. And so if you are someone who has denied Jesus or been ashamed of him, then come to him, confess and repent, and know the wonderful forgiveness that he offers. And then with his help, strive to live for him and stand firm for him. That's the second thing we can learn from Peter here. But, and this is the third thing, the funny thing about Peter's three denials is this. That while it looks like this is a moment of weakness for Jesus, that everything is ending badly for him, this is actually, including Peter's denial, this is a moment where Jesus shows he is yet again in command. He said that this would happen. He said Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crowed, and then it happened. Exactly, exactly as Jesus said it would. And so we see here in John's gospel, this is Jesus, the shepherd, laying down his life for his sheep of his own accord, totally in control, nothing out of place, everything according to plan. So nothing can stop him. Not Judas, not the religious leaders, not even Peter in his denials. No, nothing can stop Jesus accomplishing his plan of going to the cross. In fact, he uses these things to take him there. So in the rest of John's gospel, we will see he will go to the cross, his hour of glory. He will drink the cup of God's wrath for us. 
He will suffer and die in our place so that we might be forgiven and saved. He's in control of all of that. He's in command. And nothing can stop his plans. So we, you and I, can be confident, can't we? We can have confidence in our Lord that he knows what he is doing then and now. That his plans will always succeed, that they cannot be stopped. That he is bringing history to his desired end. That he is sending out the gospel into the world so that people might come into his kingdom. That he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That he will raise us to eternal life in his new creation. And that everything we face in the meantime, we can have confidence is for our good. And will make us more and more like him. Because here in John's gospel, we see Jesus arrested and tried falsely. We see Peter deny him three times. But he remains in command. He remains in control to the end. And he does this so that he might drink the cup of God's wrath for us. That he might go to the hour of his glory, bring glory to the Father, and give us eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you great thanks and praise for our Lord Jesus. That though he suffered greatly, that though he was mistreated, that though even those close to him denied him, he was in command. He was in control. And he was bringing things to your desired end, fulfilling your plans for him. Father, we praise you that he has drunk the cup of your wrath so that we don't have to, so that we might be forgiven and freed. Father, we ask that as we see Peter's example, that you would help us to know that we can be forgiven as well for denying our Lord Jesus if we repent. But Lord, help us to have boldness to not follow Peter's example and to stand firm in the face of pressure for our Lord. And Father, most of all, give us great confidence in our Lord Jesus. And we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.